everyone. This is Craig Valentine from TurbulenceTraining.com, and I'm here with Brad Pilon from HeatStopEat.com. We're going to talk about some metabolism myths and a whole bunch of uh, basic nutrition stuff. That uh, We're going to start off with things that we believe that everyone can agree on for fat loss. So, Brad, welcome to the call. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about what I think people can agree on, which is, first of all, that people need to eat more fruits and vegetables. Can can we at least agree on that? And, and when I say, can, you know, let's talk about things we can agree on, I want to talk about stuff that every nutritionist out there, no matter if they're low-carb or vegetarian or whatever, I mean, there's got to be some things people can agree on and make things less confusing for the average person. So first one I'm going to go for is fruits and vegetables. Fruits and veggies. And I think with fruits and veggies, you're on to something. I mean, you're, you're never going to get 100%. I'm sure there's, there's that odd person out there who's convinced that fruits and veggies are actually what's making everybody fat. I mean, people are, oh, people fruit, are crazy. Yeah, some people yeah. will talk about fruit that way. I think but, at least everyone will say vegetables. Very true, very true. But in general, if you look at both fruits and veggies, what you get there is a great volume to calorie ratio, right, which, which just simply means that you can eat a ton of them without taking a lot of calories. Right, so right away they get really big bonus marks for being even, you know, you can have a cup of blueberries and barely hit 100 calories. That's a great deal. Or you, or you can have less than half a Snickers bar and hit 100 calories. So just based on the fact you get a nice amount of volume from fruits, fruits and vegetables, you know, in relation to how many calories you're getting, that, that makes them kind of high up my list. The other thing is you've got a great taste to calorie ratio, right, because obviously, especially with fruit, you don't need to eat a lot of them. They're, they taste great. You know, something like a strawberry is just, you know, if it's in season, ripe, oh, fantastic. And it's, it'd be very hard to sit down and go, you know, I'm going to eat three, four cups of strawberries, right, to possibly get it up into the calorie range of, of your typical treat or snack. So they also have a fantastic taste to calorie ratio. So those two things alone make fruits and veggies really, really useful for anybody trying to lose weight. And I think that majority of people listening to this call would agree that, you know, regardless of your kind of thoughts on, on fruits and veggies, those two principles alone make sense and are a good reason enough for people to include them in a weight loss program. Cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that if someone's telling you to avoid fruits and vegetables, they're pretty far out there, and, uh, you know, certainly we can all agree that we need to do that. Now, the problem is most people – I would say 99% of people, well, I wouldn't say that much, but a lot of people, 80% of people probably know that they need to eat more fruits and vegetables. So, mm-hmm. you know, what's stopping them and how can they do better at it? And, it's mostly you know, variety. Right. If, if you look at the, the USDA, so the United States uh, Food Database, they have this great, great database of sort of food statistics. And one of the things I found really interesting is that if you looked at the vegetables, that made up the majority of uh, an Amer- a typical American vegetable intake, potatoes, tomatoes, and corn make up 60% of the veggie intake. Potatoes, tomatoes, and corn. So, yeah, I mean, there are... probably coming from sauce or from ketchup. Exactly. So, the key here is the variety, right? I mean... The other thing I found really interesting about this data is that really since about 1909, our intake of fruits and vegetables, or at least the U.S. intake of fruits and vegetables per capita, it hasn't really gone up. It hasn't really gone down. So we know we should be eating more. 
And to tell you the truth, our grandparents probably knew they should be eating more, too, just wasn't as available, right? So we all have, almost everybody in this call has food available to them at a fairly decent cost and with some, you know, a fair amount of variety. So the key to enjoying fruits and vegetables, try something new, right? Get get more than just, I mean, I think the you can account 50% of the fruit intake uh, in, in America being apples, oranges, and bananas. Go buy a mango, right? Like, the more things you try, the more new things you experiment with, the, the easier it will be to get more fruits and vegetables into your diet. And um, and just, you know, like little tips on, on getting more in there is going to help people get more volume into their diet. They're going to be more – they're going to be full, and they're going to eat mm-hmm. fewer calories. And overall, just if they can start with that, they'll, they should start to lose some weight then. Absolutely. Or at least, if anything, it just made it a, a heck of a lot easier to start losing weight. Okay, cool. All right. Um, next one is, you know, can we agree that people need to eat fewer calories to lose fat? You know, this one's a little tougher because there's a lot of people out there who talk about how you need to eat more calories somehow to lose lose fat. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it, this this one is, is fairly simple. Is that you, you simply have to, to eat less. The, the idea of eating more to lose weight, it just, I mean, fundamentally it doesn't make sense. The only thing it does is draw attention to yourself so that you can, you, people listen to you talk. But in reality, eat less to lose weight. I mean, it's, if you were to pull a group of young children with the best way to lose weight, they'd all just be like, well, eat less. I mean, that's obvious, right? It's just when we kind of, you know, we try to make things a little too complicated, we get a little too much into this, or the, you know, information overload, things like eating more to lose weight start making sense. But in reality, it's, it's eat less, and it's finding simple and enjoyable ways to eat less, and that's really the key. If you can find ways to eat less, you actually, you know, that are, you enjoy, and it isn't overly complicated. For, for a perfect example, just be, you know, replacing some of the foods you're typically eating with fruits and vegetables like we just talked about. You know, you're going a long way, right? Because now it's not a chore. It's not a self-denial. It's not, you know, 20 hours a day of extreme self-discipline. It's, it's simply still eating great-tasting food and a high volume of it, just not a lot of calories. Now, when you did your bodybuilding show, you were just eventually getting down to, what, 1,800 calories per day, six yes. days a week, and then one kind of reward meal sort of thing. Is that what you were running on? Yeah, I mean, towards the end, it maybe got a little bit less than that, but uh, that that was about it. It was it was never more than eighteen hundred calories, and it you know it wasn't a cheat day by any means. The cheat meal was just simply allowing myself to have I think some pad thai, right, just some flavor, because you know that back then I was sort of stuck in the bodybuilder mentality. So it was a lot of you know artificially sweetened protein powders and things like that. You get bored of those flavors, so. The cheat meal wasn't really for calories as much as it was for just some, some flavor, some kick. Very cool. Um, all right, and then I guess the next one that we'll go and look at is that people should eat less fast food. Every, everyone's got to be able to agree on that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't see – well, if you take our example with fruit, fast food is, is actually the opposite, right? So it's actually got a very bad ratio of volume to calories. Right, because it's pretty, they're pretty calorie dense, right? The amount of available energy in a fast food is actually pretty high for what you're getting. And I, I know that the, you know, uh, your typical fast food burger isn't as high in calories as maybe people think it is, but it's also a hell of a lot smaller than you'd want it to be. They're, they're not the way they look in commercials, right? So 
in terms of the amount of volume per calorie, they're pretty dense. And then really, if you actually sit down and have a fast food meal and just pay attention to what you're eating, you know, the taste to calorie ratio is just not there either. And I think that might be part of it is that they just, they don't actually taste the way you kind of hope they would. And you know, typically they're just a combination of salt, fat, and sugar in, in some sort of form that either resembles meat or resembles a, a sub sandwich or something. But by and large, you're, you're not getting that same awesome, you know, taste to calorie ratio or volume to calorie ratio you get with fruits and vegetables. So you start cutting back on that and automatically you're making big gains or big losses, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you make a couple of really good points there. One with the, uh, if you actually just sit and and don't inhale a fast food meal, which is what most people do, then you realize you're not getting as much taste as, as you think you are. I mean, certainly certainly when you start eating, you know, if you compare a, a hamburger to a cup of blueberries and you actually sit there and taste it, you're going to get a lot of uh, sweet and, and um, saltiness from the burger, but compared to the blueberries, the blueberries are a real, you know, real actual tasting food. And then the other Absolutely. thing you said, it was, it's funny that I was just watching a couple of uh, burger commercials, and and they make the burgers look so big and good, but you know the the teenagers they crush them into those little uh, wrapping things, and, and they're not definitely not as big as the ones that you uh, see on TV. So good point. No, it, it's well. borderline false advertising, right? Like the, the ones on TV look like they're like just these beautiful, beautiful gourmet creations, and then you get some sort of reasonable facsimile, you know, like a toy model version of it when you actually go and buy one. So. They're just not that satisfying. I think when people realize that that's why we tend to overeat them, it's because they're just they're not. And you, you actually said something really, really uh, correct there. Was a typical burger is actually a combination of sweet and salt. And you, you probably, you know, most people don't actually stop and think about this, but the actual bun of, of your typical fat food burger is actually very sweet, and that's part of the appeal, that's part of what draws you in is, is that combination. Which is unlike, you know, if you were to do a burger at home on the barbecue and put it in your, your typical store-bought bun, it wouldn't have nearly the same sweetness. Well, another thing to add to that is that, you know, since since I've, uh, you know, eaten less meat and I've done a lot of these veggie burgers and stuff, I've realized what the what most burgers are all about is simply the condiments and not so much the burger, especially if you go to a place like, you know, a fast food joint, it's not about mm-hmm. the patty there. At home, oh, okay. it's an entirely different thing. You you know, you right. make a really, or if you go to Licks or something, you know, we go there, but that's different. But most places, it's really about the ketchup, uh, the pickles, and whatever other, you know, if you like in mayonnaise, then it's really about that stuff on the bun, like you said, the very yeah. sweet bun. And it's The mustard, the hot peppers, anything to cover up the fact that the, the the meat's actually low quality. I mean, you can tell you're getting a good burger when you don't want to put anything on it because it tastes that good. That's right. 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 That's a great point. And, but most of the, the fast food ones aren't. And so when I found, you know, eating these ones that are made out of sunflower seeds, it doesn't matter what they're made out of. It could be made out of cardboard because if you put a little bit of ketchup on it, then what you're really getting is the ketchup. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, we've kind of gone a roundabout way of, you know, destroying the, the purpose of the, the fast food burger, and hopefully people realize that they, they can get something a lot better um, oh, that's more, I guess we would call real food, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, the next one is don't eat if you're not hungry. So this one sounds pretty straightforward, but then we also have people eating according to alarm clocks, you know, setting it for two to three hours. And, right. And so, you know, what's... Uh, 
what's your opinion on, on that? Eating shouldn't be difficult, right? It, it, you shouldn't have to have an advanced degree in nutrition or physiology to figure out how to eat, which means that by and large you can go, you know, an extra hour or two without eating if, if it happens. So, you know, if you're, if you're stuck in traffic and your alarm goes off, you haven't eaten in three hours, there's, there's absolutely no reason to panic. I mean, really, the majority of us have never really felt hunger. We've really wanted to eat, you know, we've badly been craving food, but hunger is a whole different thing. And I, what we experience is a conditioned response, whether it's through habit or just people we know or just, you know, marketing and conditioning, a conditioned response to want certain foods at certain times. And a perfect example of that is, you know, I think I've used this before, but I find it amusing that I can easily now fast for 24 hours. I mean, I can do it without even thinking about it. But I said I wanted to go out and get one of my, you know, a favorite snack, and I got my, you know, my mind really into it that I wanted to go and splurge and have, like, a, I don't know, an Arby's burger since we're talking about fast food. And I get there, and it's closed. It's devastating, right, because I built up the expectation. I wanted food. So it does, you can just eat when you're hungry. Is, is a little difficult because it's hard to tell when you're actually hungry and when you just want to eat. So I think the whole point there is, is to relax about it a little bit and try to really learn, you know, am I hungry? You know, is, is it time for me to eat or am I just sort of jonesing for something because, you know, I'm going to the movies and I always get, you know, M&Ms I'm at the movies or something like that. You just have to sort of tease out the habit from the true, you know, needing to eat in the right time. But you certainly do not have to make eating a chore or, or some sort of lesson of self-discipline where you're eating according to your watch. It's just, it's unneed. I mean, in terms of the time and effort you have in your life, that's an unneeded waste of both time and effort that you could be using on something else. Yeah, and I, I think, like, even if someone, you know, didn't want to commit to doing the fasting every week, just to do one, two, or three of them, um, it shows you what it is like to... Uh, feel hunger, you know, instead of, oh, you know, it's been two hours since I ate and I'm starving. Well, you're not starving after two hours. I mean, it's very no. interesting, very interesting uh, learning experience. People will have a lot more control over when they think they're hungry outside of these fasts. So I really, really uh, think it's, it's a wonderful learning experience. And so many people, obviously, on the on the Terminal Strain forums and, and uh, site have agreed. So it's been a, a very good program. Um, I guess the one other thing that I didn't put on that list that I sent you, Brad, was the forcing of sugar after training. I mean, that's not something that everyone can agree on for sure, but it's kind of a related topic to what we've been talking about here in that, yeah. or, you know, especially about what you said about forcing food and, and stuff like that. So, you know, what's the real deal with should I have sugar in my post-workout drink, should I have a post-workout drink at all? Should I focus on that? If I want to lose fat, um, you know, should I be consuming 50 grams of dextrose? You know, so right. So the original idea came from the fact that um, up until probably the, you know, early 90s, the term exercise referred to, you know, running, biking, swimming, physical endurance-type workouts. And it was these people who looked at the need for carbohydrates after workout to, to refuel and to replenish their muscles, right? And then as our, sort of our generation came up and we viewed exercise as lifting stuff, right, we still liked the idea of refueling and replenishing our muscles. Only the difference is, 
is that it was a completely different type of exercise. So if you are a high-level endurance athlete and you're going to be training again very soon and fat loss is not your goal, then by all means you should probably have some sort of sugar solution after your workout, maybe a couple hours after that, because you have to compete at a high level again and, you know, maybe the next day or maybe even several hours later in the afternoon. But for the rest of us who, you know, aren't worried about the actual performance that we do in a long-distance event, or we're trying to lose body fat by sort of burning off extra calories, it does not make a lot of sense to replace the calories we just burned off. It's the whole goal of that workout. The whole goal of putting yourself in that strenuous workout was to burn calories in the first place. And if you don't really need them, then now you're adding sort of useless calories just for the sake of it feels right or someone told me it was correct. And that's the hardest part with understanding nutrition is figuring out if you're feeling guilty about something like you should be eating because someone told you somewhere that eating right now is good, if you're being driven to eat by guilt, it's a good way to get a pretty good idea that you probably don't have to eat then. So after your workout, you know, by all means, there's nothing wrong with eating after your workout. You just have to pay attention to your goals and, and how you feel too. I've known more than one bodybuilder who just really can't. After workout, they push themselves so hard that they, they can't eat. Instead of freaking out about that, realize that it, it, it's not that big of a deal. And uh, yeah, just relax about it, basically. Very cool. All right, so let's move into the next section. We're going to yeah. talk about some of the metabolism myths. Um, so the other day I was on, uh, I think it was on MSN.com, and they, they linked to uh, a, an article that said, you know, five ways to boost your metabolism. It was from Pre- Prevention Magazine, I think. And the first thing was you have to eat breakfast. And then it went on to say how people in that, you know, that one study by uh, James Hill showed that people who eat breakfast have a better chance of keeping weight off long term. And they don't talk anything about metabolism. And I realized that no one's ever shown that eating breakfast boosts your metabolism. Is that right? Yeah, I, I would consider that to be correct. I would consider what you read to be an example of what I like to call parent phenomena. Right, so one person said it, it was accepted, it's short, it's quick, it's a nice little soundbite, and it just gets repeated and repeated and repeated without any evidence behind it. Uh, the importance of breakfast is, is perfect for that. There, There is some research on um, breakfast and cognition on children at school. So by all means, if you're on this call and you're eight years old, you, know, you should probably be having breakfast before you go to school. For the rest of us, Again, it, it doesn't have an effect on boosting metabolism. It really does not have an effect on your cognition, except if you're fretting over the fact you mixed breakfast and sort of, you know, letting it play mind games on you. And in reality, we have to consider the fact that breakfast, by and large, is a fairly new phenomenon. Um, it, in terms of the meals that we have in North America, it's actually one of the more more recent ones. It used to be kind of a late brunch that we had in, in sort of an even later dinner. But breakfast was invented when we became industrialized and had to go to work at 9 o'clock, and so we, we ate beforehand. Uh, it, it's just it, it's an odd one, too, because it's not every culture eats breakfast the way we do. Not every culture thinks of breakfast the way we do. So it's kind of absurd to think that you absolutely have to eat breakfast when there's large populations of the world that simply don't and are fine. So I wouldn't ever worry about eating breakfast to boost your metabolism because it's simply not doing it. And then carrying on with that, is there any research that shows that skipping a single meal 
even, you know, several meals slows your mm-hmm. metabolism. If 72 hours without food doesn't slow down your metabolic rate, I have no clue why skipping one meal would. So you can go 72 hours straight, and your resting metabolic rate doesn't change. And as long as you're moving around the same amount you'd normally move around, your total energy expenditure, the amount of calories you burn in a given day, doesn't change. So missing one meal, taking a break from eating, it, it should have zero effect on your ability to burn calories throughout that day. In fact, the only thing it does is force you to burn calories from your body, your body fat, as opposed to the calories from your food. So depending on how you look at it, it may not be a bad idea to kind of stretch out the space in between your meals. Yeah, perfect. And that goes back to the forcing the meals. So, you know, if someone wakes up and they're not hungry, do they really need to force breakfast into their their daily pattern? Absolutely. And that's when that's when we start getting into a very bad relationship with food, is all of a sudden food's an adversary. Right? You're being forced to eat it when you don't want to, and you're not being allowed to eat when you want to. So you really hate eating breakfast, but you eat breakfast because it's good for you. And then you really want to have a snack before bed, but you don't because you're not supposed to eat after seven. And it just becomes all of a sudden your relationship, it's not really relationship because food can't like you back, but the way you interact with food becomes so damaged that you just don't know what to do anymore, right? Because everything you're doing was, at some point, someone wrote a book somewhere where no matter how you like to eat, it's wrong, you should be doing it a different way. Only that different way was called wrong by someone else with some other book. So it just gets too confusing to the point where you just relax about it, eat when you like to eat, just sort of, you know, try to make choices, like we said, about fruits and vegetables, et cetera, you're going to be much better off than trying to follow rules that don't fit into your life. And then, okay, so so the next, so we kind of covered most of the metabolism stuff that I wanted to talk about there. Uh, were there any other myths that you wanted to mention? With metabolism, I think the key is just realizing that it is what it is. It doesn't go up, you know, with, with the exception of exercise, it doesn't change very much, right? It, it's, it's tied to the amount of lean mass you have. The amount of lean mass you have is tied really to your height and to your parents and, and how much you train. So none of these things are going to fluctuate massively <clears throat> over the course of a couple of days. So your metabolism pretty much is, is never going to be broken, but it's never going to be, with the exception of exercise, massively increased. So you can just sort of relax. Metabolism is just a result of being a living organism. So as long as you keep that up, you're going to be okay. Very cool. Now, you went to a weird research conference in uh, the UK. It was on calorie restriction, or it was on longevity, but there was a lot of calorie restriction people there, right? Anything that wasn't talking directly about drugs was talking about calorie restriction. Okay. And um, now, have you ever met one of these people who practices that calorie restriction and is overweight? It's funny you mention that because uh, uh, my colleague John Barbin came with me to that conference, so I actually... I was just talking to him at a recent, I'm like, you know, no one at that conference was overweight. Like, not, not one person. The, the probably the, the heaviest people there were, like, the journalists covering it, perhaps, but other than that, everybody else there was actually in, um, well, what we would consider to be excellent shape. I mean, they were all fairly lean, and, and for who would, their profession, not, not to be stereotyping of, of academics, but actually fairly well muscled as well. Okay. And now the calorie restriction people, you know, what is their, how extreme do they go in the calorie restriction? It depends on how extreme they've become in um, their personality. So with calorie restriction, you have the calorie restriction that makes sense, which is 
Actually, you know what? We should we should talk about what we mean by calorie restriction. Oh, calorie restriction. Okay. These, these are doing yeah. it. These people are doing it for longevity, and and you know, just maybe mention uh, you know how how few calories they eat, and this is every day for yeah. years. So there is really cool animal research. It's actually fairly old. It showed that animals that ate less than they wanted to tended to live longer. So you take the amount that they just eat. If you just threw food into their bowl and they ate whatever they wanted, and then you cut back from that. These animals live longer. And then this was, you know, first then in mice, but then all of a sudden we showed that the same thing worked in hamsters and guinea pigs, and all of a sudden we started getting research from, from apes and monkeys that you're pretty close to us, so people jump on the bandwagon really quickly. People who understand the science were eating just a slight shift. So this is if what they wanted to eat was, you know, a, a daily intake of 2,500 calories. These people cut down to, like, 18 you know, the 1,800 calories. And a bit of a learning experience to get down that level, but once you get there, you can be comfortable at that level. Uh, what There's another, about 1,800 from people, these are also very active people. But see, other people took it more extreme. And these people sort of built a belief system around caloric restriction, and it almost turned into a competition as to how little can you eat. These people were getting down to levels that, in some cases, were almost below 1,000 calories a day for long periods of time. And I think they got fairly obsessive compulsive about it because then obviously if you're eating that little amount of calories, you have to ensure the calories you're taking in are from sources that provide a nice amount of micronutrients and vitamins and minerals. So it just all of a sudden they did the exact opposite of, you know, just not caring at all about what you're eating to obsessing about it to the point where it's no longer healthy either, either, in my opinion. So I saw at this conference all ranges. I saw from people who just cut back the calories a little bit, um, people who did fasting like myself, all the way down to people where you just sit there going like, I, that's not worth it. You know, you, you've gone to a direction that I believe is no longer healthy because you're obsessing about your food so much. You're basically a very skinny version of a bodybuilder in terms of how obsessive they were about the way and style in which they ate. Okay, so now those people that have been doing, you know, even if they're just doing 1,800 or 15, well, 1,800 is still a lot of calories. For, yeah. Know. These would be people who do that and then also take very vigorous exercise. Maybe. Okay, so they're combining vigorous, vigorous, vigorous exercise with calorie restriction because they would be your typical sort of marathon runner type personality. Yeah. Okay. But there's no concern for these people at 1,800 or 1,500 or even 1,200 calories per day. Are they worried about their metabolism? Do you think, has anyone ever studied their metabolism to see if yep. it's gone yep. down? Their metabolism would be absolutely where we would think it would be given the amount of lean body mass they have. Um, because they're, they're slight people now, they don't have a lot of body fat on them. They're all um, very lean in that regard. Their total energy intake across the day because they're moving around less mass. So their total calorie intake would probably be less than an obese person. Remember, it's not losing weight that makes your metabolism slow. It's actually the opposite, is that becoming obese artificially makes your metabolism faster. I mean, the easiest, simplest way to boost your metabolism is to put on 40 pounds of fat because you've got to carry around that weight all day. But just in terms of their resting metabolic rate, just based on if you measure the amount of lean mass they have, they'd be exactly where you want them to be. Okay, so it's not, it's not the a number of calories that they're eating directly that causes their uh, metabolism to be lower. 
It's mm-hmm. the fact that they have less body mass because they're eating fewer calories that causes their metabolism to be lower. It's, it is that, and it's because for some weird reason, this group of researchers, predominantly European, haven't caught on to the second part of what I believe is sort of what you need for longevity, which would be weight training. So you have a lot of people who are eating very little, either not exercising at all or performing long, long endurance exercise, and, and virtually none of them. I mean, I, I'm not an overly large guy at 5'10", 175. John Barber with me, with me at 6'185", and we were by far the largest individuals in, in terms of muscle mass at, at this conference. So it's just something that hasn't caught on there. So I think once they figure it out, they would have preserved a lot of lean muscle mass while eating less. And uh, and then they probably have just exactly exactly where you expect them to be. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the next topic then, which is I want to ask you about is grains, because people yeah. are very, very up in arms these days about eating carbohydrates in general, but also mm-hmm. – eating rice, eating uh, grains that contain gluten, eating yeah. bread, eating breakfast cereals. You know, what, what is your take on it um, as far as fat loss goes and then health goes? Right. Okay. So if in terms of fat loss, I look, like to look at things that we eat a lot of and see where we get back. The interesting thing that happened in, in our consumption patterns is around 1940, 1945, since then, the amount of grains in our diet has been steadily increasing, as have the amount of fats and oils. And if you stop and think about it for a minute, it's because a combination of grains with fats and oils makes up predominantly a lot of the food that you could find in box foods that have long shelf life. Right? So in other words, the, the big box store super center type grocery um, marketplace demands foods that have a decent shelf life. And so you have these foods that are a combination of grains and fats and everything from, you know, breakfast cereals, et cetera, because anything else, like a, like a protein-based food, unless we're talking about, you know, beef jerky, you simply can't keep on the shelf that long. Right? You, you can't buy a, a tuna steak and then just leave it on the shelf for two and a half weeks and then eat it. That's not, not advisable by me anyways. But bread, cereal, granola bars, cookies, um, rolled oats things, whatever you want in that regard, oatmeal, they have great shelf lives, which means that they're a really good thing to have in a store because they're not going to go bad sitting on your shelf. So it's it's a made a demand for that, which means that grain consumption went up uh, largely. So if you want to pick an area to cut back on, if you actually for some reason want to target, you know, a, a type of food to cut back on instead of just simply cutting back a little bit of everything, then Grains and fats are kind of the ones you look to just because you eat so much of them. And then the, another reason is because grains and fats are traditionally what you'd find in packaged or box foods. And as we talked about earlier, those are the kind of things we'd want you to cut back on anyways. So in terms of grains themselves being evil, it's I don't understand why we always have to personify our food and, and, and you know, pick which ones are the Darth Vader's of the food industry and which ones are the Luke Skywalker's. I mean, in the right amounts. There's absolutely nothing wrong with grains unless you have some sort of grain allergy. Um, but when you're eating them in excessive amounts, I don't care what the food is, you know, there's always an excessive amount somewhere. If you're eating the excessive amounts, then you're going to run the problem. So they're, they're not, you know, like I said, grains are the Darth Vader in the food industry, but they are something we consume a lot of. So if you cut back, you, you might see some benefit. But a way of looking at it is that 
if you weren't overeating to begin with, it would be very difficult to eat too much grain, right, because you'd be limited by how many calories you're taking in. So taking in too many grains, having problems with grains, is usually just the effect of eating too much in general, again, unless you have some sort of allergy towards them. Right, and then those packaged foods are, are the ones that are the easiest ones to overeat anyways. So Not something you have in your car, right? Like you, it's really difficult to eat a steak when you're commuting into work every day, but, you know, pop a couple granola bars in, in your in your car on the way in, easy, simple. Well, no right? one has um, ever, no one in the history of the universe has ever been satisfied by one granola bar. That is my one of my rules. No, a serving size in granola bars is one box. Yeah. Right, because exactly. the first couple ones just get you primed for it, right? Like it's, yeah, no, I agreed. Right, the first three make you hungrier, yeah, and then and then about ninth one in, then you start to feel a little full. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, so a good, good point there is if you're eating a wide variety of foods, which most people aren't, that's probably another area where if people just ate a, a wider variety of foods, and, and I'll have you explain a little bit more about that because I know you've talked yep. about it a bit. If you did that, then you'd be eating less grains, and if you didn't overeat, then you'd be eating less grains, and then you could probably eat grains and, and keep them in your diet. But uh, talk a little bit about the variety and why that's important to help people lose weight. So this is the, the key. I mean, I, Manisa had to talk a lot about sort of yin and yangs and balances and, and checks and balances. And for in my opinion, if I were to find an optimal way of eating, it would be a combination of finding a way to eat a lot of variety while still eating less. Because obviously just by your goal being to eat a lot of variety, it could cause you to overeat just simply because you're trying to eat everything in front of you. But if you can balance variety with less, then it's almost impossible to overeat any one food group, right? Like, you, there's no such thing as variety if your diet's 80%, 90% grains, right? There's no such thing as variety if your diet's 90% fat or 90% protein. But when you're really experimenting with variety, when you're trying new foods, when you're trying new herbs and spices, new fruits and vegetables, and always switching it up, while still managing to eat less, you can't really eat over, you know, overeat anything. And you're not really ever going to miss some micronutrient or some macronutrient or whatever next month's latest and greatest food ingredient is because you know, you've got such a wide variety going. You've got your bases covered. I mean, every single supplement I've ever designed in my life, the the, the building blocks were from herbs and spices, you know, things that you could normally find in your diet. And then we just isolated it down, made it sound cool, sold it to you for an amazing, amazing margin. But really, I mean, fenugreek, cinnamon, um, you know, curcumin, these, these are all things that make great dishes, right? Like, it's great foods. And then um, mangosteen and, and all these papaya extracts. You know what's really even better than papaya extracts? Papaya. Tastes awesome. Try it. Right? So variety, and then you know, with a little bit of self-control, so variety with the goal of eating a little less than you might want to if you're just going for it, that tends to end up balancing everything out, and then you sort of have to get rid of your your checklist and, and notebooks of what to eat and what not to eat. So it's just an easy way to do it that you know in the end you've covered your bases. Very cool. Um, one other thing I want to ask about calories is I get so many people emailing in saying they're only eating 1,200 calories and, and they're struggling with their weight loss. And, yeah. and I mean, that is just so few calories. It, <laughs> and it, could really, it really stumps me. I really don't know what to say to them because – if they're, you know, doing the program and they're eating 1,200 calories, I mean, it's it just boggles my mind. I just don't understand how they can't be getting closer towards their goals. Right. And there's a couple of things going on here. One is that anybody who's eating 1,200 calories is eating 1,200 calories-ish, 
because any given calorie calculator, calorie estimator is exactly that. It's an estimate based on averages. The numbers we put on packages are rounded estimates based on averages of massive runs of food, right, which means the muffin sitting in front of you may be different than the muffin you bought last month, only by a small percentage but it adds up. The other thing is the numbers in terms of the gram weight of the product well, we have a range as food companies that we're allowed to do. So if I'm telling you that my uh, my granola bar is 80 grams, it could probably be 111, 112, right? And that's still considered 80 grams. It's within a normal variant. So you don't know how many calories you're eating. You have a ballpark figure. You know, when I said for my contest I was eating around 1,800, that was my best guess. And remember, most of my food was processed. <laughs> so it might have been a little easier to calculate because I was just scooping protein powder into a blender. But... In general, you have no clue. I mean, you're, you're doing your best with educated guesses, but all the other numbers you're working off of can vary in our guesses too. The other problem happening is that the the idea of um, just eat 500 less calories per day and you'll lose a, a pound of fat in a, a week is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's a bit of a myth because you have to eat 500 calories less than you're burning. So the interesting thing here is, Craig, if you're – let, let's say we, we've run a bunch of tests on you and, and we get your, your resting metabolic rate about 2,000 calories. And then we know you work out a lot. So let's say that your total daily energy intake between working out and taking value to the park is like 2,800 calories. That's how much you burn in a day. Now, let's say, you know, you've been on a bit of a bender. You've given up on this whole turbulence or anything, and you've just been doing like 4,000 calories a day. And you decide, oh, i got to get back on track. If you cut down from 4,000, to 3,500, you're still overeating. I mean, you're dieting, but you're overeating. You're getting fat just slower. In fact, if you cut down by 1,000 calories, you're still not losing weight because you're not below that number of 2,800. And this is what gets really confusing for people is that you can cut all the way down to, let's say, 3,200. So you're almost there, but you're not going to be losing weight because that fat mass you're carrying around, by and large, doesn't really cost a lot. Of calories, it's the lean mass in your activity that counts. So you actually have to get down to that number, just a little bit below 28, not a ton, just a little bit, to lose weight. So I think that's what gets a lot of people confused that there is a sweet spot. And the thing, it sounds kind of depressing, but the way to think about it is, if you're dieting and still not losing weight, you're already 90% of the way there. You're doing something right, you're just not quite there. You know, it's just a little bit more moving around during a day, or just a Small, small changes to your diet, nothing drastic. Switch from a large coffee to a small coffee, that sort of thing. It's going to get you right under that sweet spot, and you're going to be rocking. But that's why people can drastically diet for a week, but just not quite drastic enough. And drastic is the wrong word. But people can diet for a week, maybe get confused and think that they also have to eat 300 grams of protein, bump their calories up a little bit higher than it should be, and it's going like, no, I've been really diligent. I've ate eight times a day for the last two weeks. I've been watching my calories and I haven't lost a pound. So combine that fact with the fact that it's very hard to know how much you're eating, it's easy to see why people can come to you and say, Craig, I'm eating 1,200 calories and I'm not losing weight. This is ridiculous. It's because, you know, they actually, to lose weight, they needed eating at least under 1,400, just in your given scenario. That's why they aim for 1,200. And just because a little bit of poor math, you know, a little bit of overestimating and forget, forgetting to count one of their frappuccinos, they're actually eating at 1,500. They're just going to stay where they are. They're not losing weight. So 
It's tricky, and a lot of it just has to do with the fact that a lot of the numbers you see are averages and guesses that you're trying to build a, a finite number around. So you have to realize that if you think you're eating 1,200, you may not be, and that don't go crazy because you're almost there. It's just little itty-bitty changes, and you'll be well on your way to losing weight again. Cool. All right, so we've we've talked a lot in this call about, um, well, basically telling people to relax, not to worry about it too much, you know, eat a variety of foods. I mean, if someone came to us and said, okay, that's your diet advice to me, I mean, that's what I basically tried for the last 30 years, and look where it's gotten me. So what can we kind of tell people, you know, to take away and put in a practical application because, you know, for you and I, that will actually work because we know calorie amounts of foods and because and, mm-hmm. you know, we've counted them before and we've got it in our in our heads. You know, I know an orange is 70 calories. I know, you know, this piece of bread and, and that much peanut butter is going to be 200 calories. But most people don't know that and, and really don't take to the variety and, you know, eat when you're hungry and eat, don't eat when you're not hungry. And right. that just doesn't work for them. So what what can we give them a little more? Okay, so th- this is where it gets kind of almost counterintuitive because I just told you to not worry about all the sort of nutrition information cluttered out there, et cetera. But I'm going to kind of go backwards on that and say, look, just find what works for you. I, I personally, I, I'm I'm not obsessed with the way other people are eating. I, I it sounds mean, but I don't really care. What I care about is that you just find a way that allows you to eat less that you enjoy, right? And then once you find that way, stick with it. Because the cool thing about the, this whole thing is that you don't have to just keep continually eating less and less and less until you're eating like a bird. Once you find a way that starts taking the pounds off of you slowly, that's the same way it's going to keep you going. Whether you're at, you know, 60% of body fat trying to get down to 30 or 30% trying to get down to 10%. Once you find that sweet spot and what's working for you and you stick with it, and don't let calories sneak back in, you're there, right? You just have to be now making that more and more simple and more and more part of your life and your lifestyle and not letting calories sneak back in, and you're doing good. Once you find that, then, you know, if you want to, I'm not saying you have to, but if you want to try eating what some people would consider healthier, maybe more fruits and vegetables, as Craig and I were talking about, try it out. But, but the key is once you find something that works for you, once you're actually going, oh, I'm, you know, consistently now for the last couple of weeks I've lost a pound or two, stick with it. Boom. If you're enjoying it and if that's the way you like eating and that, go for it. I think it's what most people get caught up in. I think it's why a lot of people don't lose weight is because they, you know, they maybe find something that's working for them and then they read something different and they try that. And they read something different and they become serial dieters, hopping from diet to diet to diet. And really it's just find the one that fits in your lifestyle at that given time and, and go with it. Yeah, exactly. So keeping track of what works for you is very important, right? I mean, that's yeah. what you did in your bodybuilding thing, right? Absolutely. I mean, when when you're about to stand in front of a bunch of people and in really nothing more than a bikini, right? you're paying a lot of attention to bikini briefs, uh, to what works and what doesn't. Because the last thing you want to do is, is promise you to step on stage and actually put on fat. It's, it's, not, it's not what you want. So when you have that kind of incentive, uh, you tend to track what works. And what you find what works, there's no way you're moving off of it because it's working, right? It's moving you towards your goals. So, yeah, exactly what I did. I figured out what worked for me, what kind of – what amounts of calories could work for me. I also figured out where my weak spots were, right? Like the two or three coffees with two or three cream in them per day wasn't really helping my cause. So I learned, okay, I'm not giving up coffee. 
but I can go from a large to a medium and I can drop one of those creams. Those little kind of changes is, is what got me through. Very cool. All right, so I guess, you know, in summary, fruits and vegetables are good. Eating fewer calories than you need is good. Um, eating a wide variety of foods is good. And once you do that, once you do those three things, then you can, you know, you can have the grains in there if you want. And uh, then just make sure you track everything so that you're keeping track of what works and what doesn't. I say the same thing to everybody for the workouts. And anything else? I think that, that's really it. Just remembering that, you know, when you get, it sounds simple, but when you get them all in place, everything else becomes kind of obsolete. You don't have to worry about them because they're automatically being taken care of for you. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So that, hopefully that will uh, simplify things for everybody listening. Um, show you that, uh, you know, I read this one, um, one quote on, on, uh, somewhere on the internet was, you know, when you try to float, you sink. But when you try to sink, you float. And and if you think about whenever you're in, if you've ever been in a pool, if you try to you know throw you know put yourself in a ball and try to sink to the bottom, you actually kind of float. And when you when you try and not you know sink to the bottom, it's really really hard to stay afloat. So I think a lot of people, you know, if they can take what Brad and I just shared there and simplify things instead of trying so hard then sometimes when you don't try so hard, things come become a little bit easier. So hopefully that made sense to you, and hopefully that, uh, you know, Brad, you might might uh, have something to say or maybe agree with, with uh, that kind of summary of everything. No, absolutely. I mean, the key to diet success is fitting your diet into your life. Your, your life is going to change. It's going to take crazy twists and turns, and you're just going to have to adapt and roll with it, right? If you, if you start ignoring the changes that are going on in your life, due to your diet, you just, you're setting yourself up for failure. So uh, similar to the sink or swim thing, I like to say, you know, when, when life throws you down a different direction, you can either fight against the awesome power of life and try to keep going in a direction you're no longer allowed to go in, or you can take a look at that new direction, just check it out and enjoy the new, the new process and new direction. And I think with dieting, it's all about just enjoying the process. If you can find a way to make that enjoyable and not just one giant lesson of self-denial and self-deprivation, then you're going to make it work. Yeah, and if you, you know, the last thing we'll say on this, and we'll we'll let everybody go here, but, you know, if you have one of those rigid, I have to eat every two or three hours on the dot diets, you're never going to be able to adapt. I mean, what Brad has, you know, hopefully shown everybody here is a much more flexible approach that, you know, if all of a sudden you're working a double shift and you have to go somewhere right after that double shift, I mean, Brad's method is going to be much more adaptable. You'll, you'll be able to stick to your diet if it's adaptable than you would if it was eat every two or three hours. Absolutely. Great example. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. And, Brad, thank you very, very much for being on the call. We appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you. All right, everyone. This is Craig Ballantyne from TurbulenceTraining.com. And if you want more information from Brad, you can check out his blog at BradPilon.com and also his website at EatStopEat.com. So thanks, everyone, for being on the call. We will talk to you soon, hopefully to give you more simple nutrition advice.